Today's show is sponsored by Snowflake, the only data warehouse built for the cloud. Today, organizations need the agility that rapid data insights bring to stay a step ahead of the competition. With Snowflake, you can instantly and infinitely scale your data warehouse with the touch of a button, delivering deep insights at any time for all your users. So start your journey today towards data-driven decision-making by going to snowflake.com slash cloudcast. That's snowflake.com slash cloudcast. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to The Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios this week. And Aaron, it is good to have you back. It is We have a big milestone ahead of us. Yeah, absolutely. We are one show away. I'm just shocked. Just so you know ahead of time, I am just shocked. I know. We are, uh, for those of you that don't totally know what we're talking about, maybe you've joined the show over the last year or even two years, we have hit the basically the 400 show milestone. So we're going to, we, we couldn't come up with just one one sort of topic to do for 400. So we're going to do a little thing. We're going to steal from the CSPN concept and we're going to do four for 400. So we're going to kind of give you four shows that we think kind of symbolize or recognize the stuff that we talk about on the show about half are going to be about technology and half are going to be about, you know, kind of your your careers and career paths and, and things that people have done. So looking forward to, to doing those four with you, man. Yeah, and and I'll add this real quickly as well. And for those that have been around and remember it, first of all, kudos and thanks for listening for so long. But like we always, every time we hit one of these 100 milestones, we're always like, we need to do something really big. And then we always start off with like, let's have a bunch of people on and talk about a bunch of stuff. And then like, I don't know if you remember our show 100, yeah. but it was, it was the, in the San Francisco office, uh, the Cisco office across from Bosconi. And there was a whole bunch of people in the room and let's be completely honest. It wasn't one of our best shows. No, no, um, no. We, we don't, we don't do, we don't do crowdsourcing out so very well. well. And it was a train wreck. Oh, yeah, um, exactly. And so like, well, now we're like, okay, we learned, but every time we're like 200 and 300 and 400, we're like, well, let's do that. And then we're like, no, so we're trying something new here. Yeah, yeah. So I think folks are going to like these shows. Uh, Aaron and I are going to do a little preview for them, and then we're going to get to the interviews. Uh, normal length shows, so don't worry. Uh, Maybe slightly longer, but it's all good. Help you mow your grass a little better. So I thought the first one we're going to do, we're going to have uh, Joe Emerson, who is one of the people who we really love to talk to about kind of next generation application development, sort of the future of how things are being built. Joe's got a ton of background in doing serverless stuff and all. And so I thought kind of to preview that, we would talk a little bit about just – you know, we started the show in 2011. How far the industry's come in just this short eight or nine year window? Yeah, it, it is absolutely amazing to think back, you know, not just in the history of this podcast, but, but you know, when AWS launched, when, when Google App Engine launched, right? Like this entire industry that we're talking about and, and all of the listeners follow and a lot of us are starting to build, you know, entire careers and practices around like this is all maybe ten years ish old. Um, I mean, that's pretty amazing yeah. when you really step back and think about it. Yeah, um, and and like you know, way back when, right? AWS had enough or so few services you could fit them on the console, and you know there was some space, and you could figure out which ones were which. Yeah, I looked at it. I went back and I made a bunch of notes. I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. Um, you know, if if you went back to say 2011, basically what you had was uh, Amazon. You know, AWS existed. It had about uh, 15 services at the time. Um, Google App Engine was the only part of Google Cloud. Um, Azure didn't exist. Well, Azure had just launched, so you had those three behemoths were just barely in their infancy. Uh, on the enterprise side, you basically had like 
converged infrastructure was beginning to be a thing, that that VCE, VMware, Cisco, EMC conglomerate was all put together. And obviously now that doesn't exist at all anymore. Uh, you know, Nutanix was still kind of a like an appliance for VDI. Um, so, you know, and, and then the PaaS companies or the PaaS concepts, the Cloud Foundries and OpenShifts were just beginning. So that was basically the the genesis of where we started this show from, which was, uh, you know, is any of this stuff, you know, it was like make things easier for people, but there wasn't like, you know, clear winners and losers and all that wake back then. Yeah. And, and we got to see, um, you know, before Docker was Docker, you know, if you go yeah. back in our archives and, sh- and, and do a, a search for the Cloudcast and dot cloud, because dot cloud was Solomon's company that, that ended up spinning into or, or out of and created Docker. And, and, you know, we'll probably end up talking about it at some point here, but, you know, kind of the wave that was both, you know, OpenStack and Docker and some of these other technologies. I mean, it is really amazing to see uh, how far uh, this industry has come in that amount of time. Yeah, it's it's been pretty amazing. I, I went back and looked uh, at the Gartner Magic Quadrant, which you know we used to talk a lot about the Gartner Magic Quadrant, especially for like IaaS for for years and years, and who was going to win and who was on there. These are some of the companies that were in the upper right hand corner in two thousand uh, two thousand twelve. So even almost a year after we started, so Amazon was on there. Amazon Web Services, Terramark, Savas, CSC, Dimension Data, Tier Three, Rackspace, and Joyent. All those companies were considered the absolute leaders at this time. Google didn't come on the list until uh, 2014, Microsoft not till 2013, and IBM, Oracle in 2017, Alibaba in 2018. So stuff stuff can move very, very quickly uh, and change very, very quickly. Yeah, and it's really fascinating. Uh, you know, again, go go check out the graphic in the show notes. But you know. Uh... I forgot, you know, Blue Lock and SoftLayer and Fujitsu. And like, it's just, it's really just fascinating to see some of these kind of point in time snapshots. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you do go back and you, you think about some of the things that people were talking about way back in the day of like, oh, wow, uh, you know, Amazon invested, you know, $500 million this quarter or, you know, $250 million this quarter in building out their cloud. Like, oh, that's going to be a big deal. And people were like, ah, it's not that much money. And then the next year it was like they invested a billion dollars this quarter in building out their cloud. And people were like, yeah, but they still only have $500 million in revenue. And, and now you look at it. I, here's the other number that kind of blows me away. So VMware at the time, was a $3 billion company, you know, 2011, 2012. They're now a $9 billion a year company. So they've grown three times. Yeah. Amazon had not yet reached a billion dollars or they were roughly at a billion dollars. They're now a $30 billion company. They've grown 30X in that same time frame. So kind of crazy how stuff is, has shifted from, from, say, on-prem to public cloud and, and kind of the perception of some of these companies. I, I, I remember sitting at some event, I think it was VMware's Partner Exchange, when one of the guys, it wasn't Pat Gelsinger, but one of their leaders basically got up there and told all the partners, if we ever lose an application to that bookseller, we will never get it back. <laughs> <laughs> it's proven to be pretty true, buddy. Proven to be pretty yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. There's some weird bedfellows in the industry that have created on top of that as well. But yeah, I mean, it is amazing. And and you know, I'll add this as a as a quick personal one too before we we kind of close out and get Joe on here. Um, you know, I was VCE at the time, right? And and the the 
the highlight or the cutting edge architecture at the time was, yeah, converge infrastructure with some kind of manager of managers on top of it. And we were, you know, we were talking about service portals and, and catalogs and, you know, all of this automation of all of these infra, this infrastructure things. And, you know, we weren't even t- necessarily even thinking or talking about, you know, APIs necessarily no. at the time, right? Yeah. It was all about a portal and still manually clicking everything. The provisioning was there, but not necessarily this, what ended up being this, this API being the ultimate driver of all of this automation. Yeah, no, we were, we were very focused on, on all that converged stuff. Actually, for anybody who remembers the show way, 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 way back in the day, the original title for the show for about 45 oh, minutes. Oh no, you're going to bring it up. Oh no. The show was originally called Two Guys and One Wire. Yeah. And then, and then somebody told us that was a bad name. Yep. Thank you, Stu. Exactly. <laughs> well, look, dude, I, uh, I <laughs> yeah, good times. Um, so with that, let's, let's wrap up sort of the first of our four for 400. Uh, we're going to get to Joe Emerson. Joe's going to always, uh, gives us a great set of insights, a great set of kind of perspective on building this stuff for real. And, uh, man, I'm looking forward to the next hundred. Yep. Absolutely. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. What I really love about DigitalOcean is their focus on developers. With the DigitalOcean Marketplace, get started in minutes and don't worry about infrastructure. Plus, DigitalOcean's community provides over 2,000 tutorials to help you stay up to date on the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for free with a free $100 credit at do.co slash cloudcast. That's do.co slash cloudcast. And we're back. And, you know, as we talked about in the intro, you know, we're doing this as we're the first of our four for 400 shows. Uh, Really excited to, to be sort of talking about what we think might be coming next. Um, you know, obviously this show is always sort of trended towards looking at what's a little bit further out in the horizon, uh, looking maybe a year, two years out in some of the bleeding edge technologies and some of the companies and people that are shaping that. So we thought we would bring back one of our favorite guests and somebody who doesn't pull any punches and really lets us know kind of from a reality perspective, um, you know, what's, what's real, uh, what's working, what he's doing in his world. So very excited to have Joe Emerson back. Uh, Joe is now co-founder and CTO of Branch Insurance. Joe, good to have you back on the show. It's great to be back. Thank you very much. It is. Uh, it's been a little while. Uh, we, you know, it, we have this thing where we feel like we we talk to people, and it's only been a few months, and we looked, and it's been almost two years since we talked to you the last time. Um, you sh- you've you've shifted companies before. You were uh, you were helping to work on on building stuff. Uh, you know, building in the sense of like um, build facts and and companies and contractors. You've shifted uh, that focus a little bit. Tell us about your new company and what you've what you've co-founded or what you're in the process of co-founding. Yeah, um, so uh, in the process of uh, building out uh, the uh, first ever uh, home and auto insurer uh, from scratch. Um, so every other uh, personalized insurance company that sells home and auto has started with one and not the other. Uh, so uh, we're launching both, uh, and we are bundled home and auto insurance powered by community. So uh, uh, it's a uh, it's it's been a wonderful thing. I I sold. Uh, to insurance companies at BuildPack, uh, and I got to uh, team up with a guy who I had uh, sold many times to, uh, who's just a wonderful person, wonderful human being, and a great business mind. Uh, and so uh, we're looking forward to launching this year. 
Very cool. Very, very cool. Yeah, we uh, we did some stuff around uh, insurance tech uh, with some stuff we were doing with MetLife last year. So we, we got a, a peek into what are some of the things people are trying to do to, to shape, shake up that industry a little bit. So we'll be excited to see what you're doing with it. Um, the, you know, the last time you were on, uh, and for folks that were maybe not listening to the show back then, we'll put it in the show notes. It was back on episode 242. So it has been a little while. Um, we were just starting to get into serverless and you had been using some of the serverless technologies, Lambda, but some of the other ones for a while as part of your last company. Um, you know, you gave us some really good insights, kind of not just, well, it's not just about, you know, it's cheap compute or you could scale it to zero. You were really talking about the shift in how applications developed. It's been a couple of years now. Uh, I assume, I mean, you were super passionate about it back then. I assume you're still following a similar model. Kind of what have you seen tech-wise that's, you know, about how you're building applications these days that uh, is helping you have a competitive advantage? Yeah, um, it, it has been, uh, it's been a great, uh, past few years, and yes, I'm still very much a uh, proponent of serverless, although I have learned a lot of things, <laughs> um, made mistakes. Um, uh, you know, maybe it's probably worth uh, just starting by saying that um, I think that there are a lot of people who are building things serverlessly that aren't getting much benefit from them or doing it n- not in great ways. Uh, I think it's uh, like with any technology, I think it's possible to use it uh, incorrectly. And I think in general, as an industry, the uh, software development industry, that is, we are very bad at figuring out what we're optimizing for and, uh, and knowing that and aligning on that with the, with the rest of the people in our organization. Uh, and so I think we make all sorts of silly decisions. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of my focus is really on uh, what I really care about focusing on, uh, and then uh, and then implementing it in the best way possible, which I think it serverless is, you know, the the option for the future. Um, so I'm happy to dive into any of those details. Let me just pause there for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's helpful. I, I think, um, you know, a lot of times depending on on where you come from in the stack. If you come from the infrastructure side, you look at serverless as okay, it's it's the new way that infrastructure is going to kind of get done. And I know. Just from watching whether it's you or Paul Johnson or anybody who's really deep into the serverless side, the the shift in thinking has really moved, especially from an application perspective to, you know, this is this is all about almost drawing a, a really straight line between some business function you have, what you know, a cost of the business or a thing that you can make money in, in the business, and a literal function and the be able and you know, and to be able to get really granular about that. And that's a totally different way of thinking about IT and application building. It's it's not technical debt anymore. It's not you know capacity. It's just what's your business? How do you make money? How do you profit on that? Or what does it cost? And and what does the software need to do to be a part of that? Um, so I'm really interested how, how you know is is that kind of how you see things? And what are some of the underlying technologies that maybe make that happen or better these days? Yeah, I think that I think that is a good way to think about it. I mean, and maybe expanding on that uh, slightly. I mean, if you think about where we've come, like the last 20, 25 years, um, you know, we, I think we've re- we reached this point where we realized software is eating the world. Every company is becoming a software company. And therefore, our ability to develop software is our, it, it, for many companies, is, a, is our, your growth engine or maybe just survival, right? Um, uh, I think there's a good case to be made that Netflix uh, is the company that it is because Disney was just unable to build what Netflix built. Uh, at the time Netflix built it. Um, and, uh, and so we, 
so I, I think we have this amazing relationship between software development and business growth, but because of how complicated it has been to develop software and because the uh, requirements for software are ever increasing, um, we've had to have at, at an organizational level all of these different talents, right? We've needed the, the software developers, but we've also needed a whole host of systems administrators, network administrators, uh, database administrators, right, and uh, infrastructure uh, operations, et cetera, and those have all had to have been in-house specialties uh, in the same way that some companies had their own power plants 100 years ago or more. Um, and, and so what we've seen, I think, with the cloud is this increasing uh, reduction in the number of in-house specialties we have needed to have in order to deliver world-class software and deliver that business value. And, and what we've also done is we've shortened this uh, chain where the business says, you know, makes a decision and says, we need this thing to grow. We need this software development to grow. And it involves, you know, like 150 people in like 30 different departments versus, you know, can we get back to a place where that, those can be small because when they're smaller, they're faster. Uh, they have fewer communication, you know, less communication overhead. You're more agile all of those things. And so in my view, what serverless is doing is it, it's continuing this path where we no longer need a lot of these in-house specialties. And so another way to think about it is, uh, and, and I, this is an analogy that's sort of coming up on Twitter now, which I think is a very good one, which is, which says, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years ago, you can say, well, we're, we're starting to use frameworks like Ruby on Rails or Django. Uh, in order to cut out a lot of the rep, rep, like undifferentiated repetition that was required in software development. And if you, I think the best way to think about serverless is that it's yet another sort of iteration on that framework uh, concept uh, of something like a Ruby on Rails or Django, except that now it includes infrastructure. Uh, and, it, and it includes all of the aspects of infrastructure. It includes uh, patching, it includes scaling, it includes failover. Um, all of these things get included, uh, and so, and so you, again, you end up shortening this path where it's possible for like a business lead plus a designer uh, plus a developer to actually just launch a product in the same way that that you know is possible with uh, an app that doesn't have a backend, or that it was possible for small business applications pre-internet when you were just making you know standard desktop applications. We're getting back to a place where we can do that, but now there are these highly scalable, always online applications. Yeah. So I'm curious, um, you know, you, you know, talk about certain things that helped push us past things from a simplicity perspective. Uh, you know, one of the great challenges that, that every technology has or one of the great, uh, I don't know, burdens that, that te engineers tend to have is they always want to know what goes on under the covers. They want to know uh, what happens. And, and the more we, we move to services that do things for us, there's a, I guess there's a part of people that go, oh, I lose that. I don't know what's going on. Certain decisions or opinions are made for you. How have you and your engineering team shifted from that, hey, what's going on under the covers to, okay, uh, I, I'm going to take what they give me. I'm just going to accept that and, and kind of work around that. Like how, how has that mindset shift uh, shifted for you uh, in terms of just helping people feel comfortable with, you won't always know everything, but the trade-off is, you know, you probably didn't need to know that stuff. Yeah. It's, this is a great question. I call this the touch and feel your servers problem um, because 
you know, this was the problem for cloud, right? Which was like the, well, I like to touch and feel my servers, um, which was never any value add to the organization. Um, or, or maybe at some point it was like three, you know, good co-location facilities. Um, but um, I, it's a great question. I mean, the, the shortest answer is I tend to hire front-end developers um, and, and that as a, as a primary uh, choice and, uh, and, and not, I mean, I, you know, I don't need, I don't have any pure backend uh, developers uh, in, in branch today. <laughs> um, wow. And I haven't hired one in a while. Um, and that's not to say that I won't, but um, it, you know, your need, my need for that, um, I end up doing uh, most of the backend development and the front-end developers do backend development as well uh, because it ends up being a lot simpler in, 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 within this paradigm. Um, I do think that there is a, there's a real challenge to wanting to know how things work under the hood. The way that I have handled that when I've run into it when consulting um, is, uh, is usually I use an example that uh, people don't really care about what happens under the hood. And I think uh, Twilio is a great example of this because people know it. Nobody, I mean, I actually back in the early 2000s bought telephony cards and built an IVR machine, multiple IVR machines and like shipped them to building departments who were using our IVR. So like, I remember having to order those cards. I wrote like windows software that, that, that ran on those telephony cards. It was a nightmare. Um, uh, but I've never known a developer using Twilio for like SMS or, or, or other telephony things to really care what goes on behind the hood. So, um, I generally like to bring that up as an example. I think Cloudinary is another good example. Like I genuinely don't think that anybody using Cloudinary, you know, I think once you use Cloudinary, you don't go back to like image magic. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And again, I've never known a developer to do that. I could give you other examples where people have a much harder time with them, but I actually think that this is a latent issue that has to do with how uh, a lot of technologists or some technologists define their identity. Um, so I've often said, like, if your title is Oracle DBA or SQL Server DBA, like, you know, your identity is tied to a, to a vendor and a technology. And I don't think that that's good. Yeah. Um, I think that, one, it will never, your organization will never stop using that technology uh, while you're there. Um, I mean, or you'll, you'll have to, you know, you need to change your title, right? Um, uh, you know, and, 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 I, and I think there are, you know, like I see, on Twitter, a lot of people who are, who are pretty big serverless doubters tend to have in their Twitter bio something like Linux freak or like systems administrator or, you know, like, I mean, they're, they're like, they're, they're, they're defining their identity by the use of certain technologies that, uh, you know, fundamentally development in serverless doesn't require an organization to have that as an internal specialty. Uh, and so I actually, I, I think that, I think that it probably makes sense to go back to that root cause as opposed to trying to answer what I think is really a pretextual uh, concern uh, around, well, I really need to know how it works. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is all not to say, I mean, you shouldn't use unstable services and there are absolutely unstable services that you shouldn't use. Um, but there are plenty of wonderfully uh, scalable, available services that have much better uptime than anybody, you know, in-house could, could deliver to you uh, and, and that you shouldn't have any concern about how they do things. Yeah, no, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And it, it does, it's like you said, it's sort of when you, when you lead the question 
in that direction, it gets people to, to sort of want to be uh, defensive and, well, I, I should know these things. And like you said, if, if, if you keep it focused on what are we trying to do to, to improve the business? Um, and ultimately, you know, like you said, for, for a lot of people, um, you know, being able to, to be less specialized on a certain specific technology or a vendor's technology actually will probably free them up quite a bit in the, in the future. Um, let, let's, let's sort of, yeah, yeah go ahead. Just- I was going to jump in. Uh, uh, Jesse Frizzell, I think, has a, has a great comment, which is like, your your job should be, like, you should find people who automate themselves out of a job and then just keep giving them jobs. Yeah. Um, and that that's like the promise of technology and software. It lets you do that. And if that is your attitude and, and mindset, then you will do very, very well. Um, but, you know, if your mindset is like, I know a technology and I use that technology, uh, the, the industry just moves too quickly for that to be, uh, a, you know, a, a really beneficial position to be for your, uh, you know, for the organization you're working for. Yeah. Well, let's, let's sort of flip it around a little bit. Um, you know, you talk about kind of combining, say, front-end developers with, with business analysts and so forth. Obviously, um, you know, when you do that, there's a little bit of some translation that has to happen, right? The, the business analysts, the product managers kind of know from a business perspective, what do they want to do? Here's, here's the customer experience I want. Here's, uh, you know, here's the thing that we're trying to, to put in front of, in front of a customer. How do you find that, that some of these new serverless types of services, I know you, you introduced us to like NetLafly the last time you were on, I think there's a bunch of others that have come along. How well are they adapting themselves to kind of present themselves as more business centric than, uh, you know, just the technology behind it. Like, cause there, there's gotta be some way that the translation's not such a big gap uh, from somebody going, here's what I want to do. It's the back of a napkin or a spreadsheet to how do we make that work technology wise? I love this question. And I, maybe my answer will surprise you. I mean, I am not, I, I would say two years ago, I was a much bigger uh, fan of the low code, no code platforms, um, which, which I think do fit into the serverless paradigm. But today I'm much I'm a much bigger uh, doubter of them, actually. Um, I, and so, um, actually, the way that I uh, believe that, you know, the business should deliver requirements to development, uh, it really, it would be uh, uh, agnostic of whether you were serverless or not. Um, and I think that's one of the, like, that's, that's an important uh, aspect of how I view serverless. So, I mean, I think that there, I think you need good product managers. You need to run good uh, kickoffs. You need to have great designers. Uh, we have a fabulous designer um, uh, who uh, we need, your designers need to need to make complete designs like in Envision with Zeppelin uh, uh, to give the developers like exactly what they're going to implement. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you need to test it as much as you can uh, with with the public and you need to run usability tests as soon as you have it you know, fully usable uh, to make sure that it works. Um, and then part of all of this, obviously, is also aligning the business and helping the business understand that the, the, and, you know, I, I don't really like that separate term, but I think everybody knows what I mean when I say, you know, the business, um, you know, helping the business understand that they're not the authority on, on what's right and what needs to be done. It's the, it's the, you know, the customer, the end user who's the authority. And so our goal is always to put up our best uh, hypothesis that we can develop in a reasonable amount of time. And then we, we validate through usability testing with the customer and then we iterate off those tests. And so if you get everyone aligned on that and everyone participates in those usability tests and you have that full designer, um, you know, that's a set of specifications that can go to anyone. And that's one of the reasons why I love front end developers is because I do a lot of front end development. 
uh, I think you gotta you gotta you gotta do the hard work to implement the interfaces that are exactly the interfaces you need. Uh, and so again, when I look at like a low code or no code platform, what I see are ultimately things that you you run into real velo development velocity problems when you're trying to implement the things that are really usable. And so I think for like internal development, those things are fine. Like I think something like Airtable is beautiful for an internal tool where you're going to train people how to use it and it doesn't necessarily have to be the most usable thing. But I think if you're actually developing product for end users, especially consumers, but even uh, B2B uh, interfaces, I mean, I, I, I just don't think they, they allow you to do what you need to do to build a product that you're going to want to build. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, no, it's it, it's definitely a space that I think talks about a lot of promise. And then, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that comes along. I know there's some companies that are that are planning to do some some more low code things. And I think the, the, the premise is the more people we can have that kind of translate business ideas into something that's software. But yeah, the, like you said, the, the reality is in does it actually work? So to, so to mention a specific company here in the space that I think is like, I, so uh, here's a thesis for you. Um, I, I so I've used a lot of the low-code, no-code platforms, and they've all been dissatisfying to me for end-user product. However, uh, I recently saw um, uh, a product called DraftBit, D-R-A-F-T-B-I-T. Uh, -I um, and, and what's really interesting is the approach they've taken to this kind of lower-code interfaces. And so what they've done is they've basically built a simpler abstraction layer on top of React Native that is quite easy for designers to use, but it essentially compiles into React Native. And so if you think about a process where React Native is an abstraction layer on developing native apps, and then you build another abstraction, and again, it compiles down to native apps, right? React Native compiles down to native apps. So if you think about it, another abstraction layer on top of React Native that compiles down to React Native, but that is simpler and, again, has more sort of rails around it, but, ra but it's like limiting things that a lot of people don't care about. I think that's a much more uh, stable and much more promising route to go uh, when, as we're trying to reduce the amount of code. The other thing is it creates this great learning curve where most of the low-code, no-code platforms, like if you learn them really well, there's nowhere to go. Like, you could like learn how to do development on the side that you could like maybe plug into them, but there's, you can't, it's not a path. But the interesting thing with something like DraftBit is you could like learn DraftBit. You kind of learn how React Native kind of does things because it's an abstraction on React Native. And then if you said, well, I need to do things that DraftBit doesn't let me do, then you'd have this interesting aspect where you could then learn React Native and it would be an iterative path. And so you'd have these, much smaller learning curves as you learned your way uh, to, you know, potentially like full native app development, which every React Native developer ends up having to do some native code usually. And so I think that pattern is much more promising. And I would expect to see those be much more successful than like something that's trying to abstract the whole process away from you. But instead, this kind of ladder step abstraction to reduce the code and put more rails around things. I think it, I think it makes a ton of sense. Interesting. So one last question uh, before we, before we wrap up here, um, you know, the new company is, is really kind of trying to, to reestablish the home and auto bundling. You know, you, you talked a little bit about, Hey, you know, it, it was, it was one model years and years ago. It's kind of evolved. You're, you're trying to reestablish kind of the, the origins of it. How much do you find that, you know, having the experience you do of of having you know built applications in these new ways, ways that are 
you know, much, much less technical debt, much lower cost um, is going to help you kind of get into these businesses that, that have big incumbent players? Or is there still kind of this, this mix of you've got to find a, a better business model, plus you've got to be better at the technology to, to be successful? It's, it's, I love this question, too. Um, so, uh, so the incumbent, the, the big incumbents in, in insurance, ha- their, their systems are like huge albatrosses on them. Um, uh, insurance is this notoriously like uh, annoying, uh, well, hi- let's say highly regulated industry. Uh, and the regulators are great for the industry and great for the consumers, but there are different regulations in every state. And so it, it, it ends up being this sort of amazing challenge and then as an insurance company, you release new products. And so you end up having all of this essentially bespoke code all over the place. And so uh, the incumbent players have such an albatross around their necks with their technology. They just have a very hard time getting anything done quickly. So honestly, just showing up and not having any of the legacy policies and products and being able to introduce new products on new technology is an enormous advantage. And you can already see it in, in other uh, insurance startups in the space is that they're just able to develop features much faster. Um, in terms of uh, serverless, I mean, I think that our agility our, and our ability to uh, bring new things in the market will exceed anyone who's not serverless. So even uh, insurance startups. Um, Largely because we 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 need fewer people to make decisions, and we need there's just less work to be done and less code to be written to release new things. And I one one uh, thing that we've done uh, that I didn't realize how impactful it would be um, is you know so our stack is we've got a JavaScript framework on the front end, we have a GraphQL API, we have JavaScript on the back end, and we store in DynamoDB. Uh, which is a, uh, J- essentially JSON document store, you could think about it. And if you think about what's happening here, the object that exists in the programming language on the front end is the same, has the same schema, same object as the API, which has the same schema and object that's in the back end code, which has the same object and schema that's stored in the database. And if you think about a standard application that might be written today, even by a startup, you might have a JavaScript framework on the front end, a RESTful API, something like Ruby on Rails in your, as your backend code, and then a relational database as your data storage. And every single one of those steps of the way requires data transformation. So if you want to, you know, add a new, you want to add a new column uh, or a field to some aspect of your schema, you, you have to add it everywhere, essentially, if you're doing like type checking and things like that. Whereas in our world, you essentially just add it to the GraphQL schema and then and GraphQL does its enforcement, and then everywhere else is just, you don't you have to do any transformation. And so if you just think about that repeated over how often you do make changes, especially when you're we're launching things, it's just this enormous, um, not necessarily velocity increaser, it's just a lot of stuff you don't have to do, uh, and a lot of stuff that blocks developers that is just can't block them because it's not there. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Joe, uh, 
appreciate the time as always. Uh, we'd love to catch up with you. We need to do it more frequently. Uh, we'd love to kind of you know catch up on, on how the new company's going, say in six, nine months or whatever. But thank you so much for number one, being part of this four for 400 series. Uh, we, we always love having your insight into it. And uh, folks with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, we hope you got some insight into kind of the future of how applications are being developed, maybe how smaller companies are going to be disrupting or, or reshaping larger industries. So thanks to Joe and for Aaron and myself. Uh, we're going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everybody for telling a friend and following the show. And with that, we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 